Join Raise the Line in celebrating the launch of the new Osmosis Clinical Sciences Library. Developed for first-time clinical learners, it includes hundreds of visually engaging videos paired with decision-making trees aligned to U.S. core clerkship curriculum guidelines to help students think clinically from day one to patient one. Start your free trial today at osms.it rtl. Hi, I'm Shibuglani, welcoming you to Raise Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and healthcare. Our in-depth look at the potential use of psychedelic compounds in mental health treatment continues today with a focus on the role they may play in helping people overcome substance use disorders. My guest is Dr. Jishan Chowdhury, whose own mental health journey led him to found Journey Collab in partnership with OpenAI CEO Sam Altman. Journey Collab's mission is to combat addiction through psychedelic care, employing a unique stakeholder model that includes indigenous communities in ownership. Dr. Chowdhury has been a creative force in the health space for many years, co-founding several organizations, including Hacking Health, a nonprofit that facilitates collaboration between frontline clinicians and tech experts. He has won numerous national research awards, edited two medical exam preparation textbooks, and participated in a life sciences research project at the NASA Astrobiology Academy that will ultimately be carried out in space. Dr. Chowdhury is an MD and Doctor of Philosophy who studied at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and has continued his educational pursuits at the California Institute for Integral Studies Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research. And I had the opportunity to first meet him at the Psychedelic Science Conference in June in Denver. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So welcome to the podcast, Ishan. Thanks for having me, Shiv. So you obviously have a super impressive background, one that I think many of our audience can aspire to, being mostly medical students or, or healthcare professional students or providers. Can you, in your own words, give us your background? What got you interested in pursuing a career in medicine and then ultimately technology? There's a couple input, input, inputs into that. Like I always was a very nerdy kid growing up, so very into my biology classes, my science classes. I was also a very bullied kid. <laughs> I was not one that was good on the sports field. I was you typically like first in class, last in the playground and in and on the on the pitch. And so those forces combined really to push me towards becoming very academically oriented. And uh, like many people in medicine, we come, I come from an immigrant family where the push for a secure profession, a stable profession was a strong influence as well. And I always thought I would be a scientist. And then what drove, I guess was what came together was this passion for biology, this I have to admit, like many, like many people come from immigrant experiences, push to come into a, a stable profession, and then being very much a people person, even though I was very bullied growing up, and I didn't want to talk to test tubes my whole life. That that drove me to to medicine as like a stable base to be able to explore more. And I was very fortunate as I got into medicine was able to see like other areas outside of just clinical medicine. So I did an internship at the NASA Academy that you mentioned that opened my eyes to the applications outside of just clinical medicine. That's what pushed me to do a PhD. was very fortunate to get a Rhodes Scholarship, as you mentioned, got to see more. And so I just you know went from this very much like directed towards this base of medicine and then started pushing out from there. And I'm very grateful to have done medical training. I ultimately did not pursue clinical practice, but it was a base for me to then push the envelope of my life. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Very relatable as well. Immigrant myself. And, you know, we know the, the drill about a stable profession. Education is certainly how our parents got to the U.S. We're most likely. And so education is what will help us and many of our listeners, you know, have that stable base. So you pushed into all these different areas. Can you tell us a bit about your time at, at Oxford? Like, what did you do your DPhil in? And, you know, what, what were some seminal experiences you had that ultimately got you into what you're doing now, which is psychedelics and mental health? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I got to Oxford with a plan to work in a research lab, like to be on the bench wearing a white coat, and very quickly realized that that did not fit my personality. I made so many mistakes in, in pipetting, and like, I really, what I really enjoyed was the human interaction, the the, quest, the questions around science. And the other thing that was really frustrating was, and I think you know, things are accelerating, but from bench to bedside was just so much time. And so it was out of an impatience and wanting to interact more uh, on the front line that I moved more from, uh, you know, eventually from like wet work to hardware to software because it, the, it, the cycles were just much faster. And so by working in technology broadly, but then moving more into the digital space, I was able to get closer to implementation, closer to seeing how it, it actually affected practice. Uh, and that's how I, that's, that, that's what I got. That's how I got into informatics, which then, you know, led me to then, going into Y Combinator to launch my my first company was taking the experience I had around how like studying how does technology and the flow of information affect medicine to then thinking, okay, well, there's a lot of broken spots here. My my journey to Y Combinator was very much through my personal experience. I was on and your listeners were late. Like I was on my rotations. I had my paper list for, ready for the weekend. I went, I remember this really well, actually. I went down to get my, get a coffee f- to prepare for the weekend, went back upstairs to the call room and I couldn't find my list. And I'm like, I am totally screwed <laughs> for this weekend because I put all these, I, I had a perfect list with all the notes, what to do, and it was all gone. And I'm like, I can't find this in the chart because this is not, you know, this, the, the, how we work is not captured in the system of record. And that was one of the nucleuses about my first company, List Runner, which essentially was just a handoff application. I was around that that experience, but very much based on like what I had learned in my PhD around informatics. Wow, that's awesome. And obviously, again, relatable because that, that's one of the reasons I've returned to med school myself is I think I wrote a Forbes article about this and gave a talk where the 2F framework is what I call it, where one of the Fs is fear, right? It's kind of sucks to go from running a company to being bottom of the totem pole, a student being told what to do all the time and doing scut work. But that fear is what leads to growth, right? On the other side of that, if fear is growth, but the other one is frustration, right? When you are frustrated by that experience that you just shared or by how inefficient lectures are in med schools or a whole host of a million things to get frustrated about, rather than just being mad or frustrated, you know, if it's a compelling enough and recurring frustration that can turn into an opportunity to innovate as you did, with list runner. So maybe walk us through that company, how did how to go, how was the Y Combinator experience, and then what eventually led to you starting Journey Collab. I would love the origin story of, of the new venture. Sure. Yeah. I mean I had I I finished my graduate training at, at Oxford, come back to internship or, or clerkship as we call it in Canada. Had that experience of, hey, there's just a lot of things broken here. We're doing a lot of things inefficiently. <laughs> Our first logo at list runner was actually don't be a scuff monkey <laughs> which only spoke to residents and interns but like it, people people got it and what was i think what was what was important for me is like we were i was trying it out i met met a co-founder through through hacking health where we were doing hackathons in hospitals we weren't we we're getting some traction raised a little bit of money 
from some physicians who wanted to do, to do angel investing. But YC was very important in my journey because I had spent at that point, 12 years in my training had gotten into, into residency and I needed some external validation <laughs> to be able to step outside that. But more importantly, and I think for those who come from like an immigrant perspective, perspective will understand this. I needed some validation for my family. And the idea of saying, I'm going to step out of residency and take this risk was challenging enough, but actually being able to say, we got into YC, we have some seed funding that's real, but more importantly, this is there's this validation. And my brother, who's a, an ICU and ENT doc, was actually able to convince my parents, a very like classic immigrant parents, but like, no, this is actually a real thing to be able to do it, was, was that was crucial for me. So people, a lot of people talk about accelerators or like, what's the value you can do it on your own. You certainly can. But for me, in my family situation, in my personal history, that external validation was really important to be able to go through. And then it was certainly helpful. Like I, you know, despite all my training, you know, I hadn't done an MBA. I had never run a business before. It was like this boot camp and like, how do you run? I remember the first time we were like one of the first things that they did at YC in a couple of weeks was like running a pipeline. And I'm like, I'm not in oil. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's like a sales pipeline, like very simple things that most people would understand. But that like, I was able to take my medical training, my PhD training and actually apply it into the real world. And, and another thing that I remember from, from YC that was really critical is that Paul Graham was still involved at the time. And he came in to do just one talk and he was like, you know, a lot of you have been very successful in school because you know how to follow an assignment have been successful in the company because you know how to placate your boss or like look good to your manager. But in a startup, there's none of that. There's no faking it there. It's like, it's you in the market. It's like that raw, like, do you have something that people want enough that they will buy it from you enough that they will give you your time. And that I actually got super scared in that moment. Cause I'm like, wait a minute, everything I've done so far has been convincing somebody at a proxy level that, Hey, I have something of value to contribute now i really have to do it and so that shift was just massive for me and uh i think it was a very it was a very big part of my journey eventually we did get acquired spent some time in, in the acquiring company i got and then if you transition to the question of how i got to psychedelics like it was very much my own personal like my personal mental health journey i had spent like many people, I think to restore re readers relate to this, if they're in medical school, had been chasing achievement to fill a personal gap in myself. And I think that happens to a lot of us that have, that especially have an immigrant experience or an outsider experience that we seek after these external validations. And I did a lot of them. I did med school, I did Oxford, you know, I did YC. But it was the, the surprising thing was that it was after I sold my first company and I achieved the safety and security that I had been struggling for my whole life that I got to this crisis point. And along the way, I should say, like, I, you know, I'd struggled with my mental health. I had tried what we had available from antidepressants to talk therapy. Those things do work. They don't work as well as I think they could for a lot of people. Wellbutrin actually got me through the last two years of medical school, but it always just felt like I was drowning in my mental health and the Wellbutrin or the coach or the therapist or whatever was like someone threw me a life preserver and I could keep hold my head and keep it above water. But it was something about the selling my company that I got to this point of desperation where I, I got the safety and security I wanted and I still had this feeling of wanting to, of drowning and wanting to let go. And quite frankly, I got to this very desperate part of my life, which was what 
gave me the, I guess, courage or bravery to try something new. And fortunately, I was able to meet a safe psychedelic therapist because I've been in San Francisco and there are people who are not only just trained clinicians, but have done additional training on top of that, as well as people who, and I didn't know this at the time, had spent some time learning from traditional and indigenous communities about how these medicines have been used. Because while they're new to us, they're not new to humanity. All to say I found somebody safe. And the way I like to describe it is that in that psychedelic state of consciousness, in that safe therapeutic clinical container, for the first time in my life, the muddy waters I had been drowning in cleared up and I could see what was holding me down. And that was from, you know, experience of being bullied, the experience of internalizing racism and the experience of growing up in a very homophobic time and place. And for the first time, knowing myself and accepting myself and getting a glimpse of that. And it wasn't done after that. Like, it was just like, here's the path to how you accept, know yourself and accept yourself. And that changed my life completely. And I, like many people, ask the question, well, why is this not more available I started doing more research into it. That's how we got reconnected with Sam, who's asking some similar questions. He at the time was still president of YC and running this group called YC Research that was looking into psychedelics. And he very quickly was just like, Dishan, you should start a company in this space. I'll write you a check. And I'm like, Sam, I'm a brown immigrant in America. The war on drugs looks at me very differently than it looks at other people. I quite frankly talk about fear. I was scared of starting a psychedelic company. I know it's all the rage now, but I'm just like, I don't know if this is the right fit for me. If things go wrong, I know who to go after first, someone who looks like me. But as more and more I spend time in it, I was just like, from a physician, from a scientist, from the perspective of an entrepreneur, this needs to happen. And I was very fortunate that Sam believed in me even before I believed in myself. And the moment I was like ready to make that switch that happened like at the start of the pandemic where like many people were asking the question, what am I doing with my life? I did that. Sam wrote me a check that that day and we got started. Wow. That's incredible background. There's so much to unpack in, in that response, you know, ranging from, you know, fully agree with you with the validation and the, the whole journey. And I think what a, lot, what a lot of our audience will relate to is trying to fill that gap in themselves from whatever that they may be aware of or may not be aware of by chasing these external benchmarks to, to the founding story of Journey Club, which is fantastic. And thank you for being so open and vulnerable about your own mental health journey, because I think, you know, we're, that's, that's part of the movement is trying to validate and normalize the vulnerability. Obviously, people like Brene Brown have done a great job of turning vulnerability into strength. Obviously, it informs your own very successful career. But I think, I think it's important for us to talk openly about this. And my hope in bringing all this psychedelic coverage to our audience is I think a lot of people in our audience could benefit from similar things, both, you know, whether or not they have a clinical diagnosis, which obviously we've seen Nature Medicine just published their second MAPS paper last week about PTSD, or they're just trying to flourish. I think when we met, we were at the same event with David Yaden, who was on our podcast. And David is the Roland Griffiths professor at Hopkins, who's a lot of his research endeavors are about human flourishing and creativity and, and whatnot. So let's go into Journey Collab. You know, so Sam writes you a check, you start building it. What are you building you know, what's the scale of the organization? And I also mentioned in the introduction that it's a unique stakeholder model, including indigenous communities and ownership. So maybe you can dive into that as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot to unpack there. You know, like many startups, we've, I think the important thing about a startup is that it's nimble and it's able to find its way. And my first company, actually, with Bliss Runner, I remember going to office hours with Sam and I'm like, hey, you know, like we got this initial traction. 
but we've hit some roadblocks. Like we're not converting to enterprise contracts. We get like, you know, a max growth of around, you know, like a couple dozen users and then we stop. And we were very frustrated. And like, I remember looking at him being like, you know, what do we do? And he's like, you know, you can give up. I was like, if you want to keep doing it, he was, he was very kind of blunt about it in, in this. And then even though it's almost 10 years ago, I remember it very clearly. He was just kind of looking he's like, well, like you can either stop or you keep experimenting and try and figure out what will work. He's like, you know, other than Instagram, I can't think of a single startup that like hit it on the nail with their first idea. And I think for a lot of people in medicine where it's like this very defined path to go through, like you go, you know, you do your MCATs and then you, you know, you go through your preclinical and you go through and like, it's, it's very clear, like this uncertain path and like being able to fail is really, really hard. And I think it, it discourages a lot of otherwise very smart and creative people in medicine to try something because without that defined path, it is is very tough. And so, you know, at Journey, we started off looking at a couple of things. We knew that addiction would be the place that we wanted to work because it was under underserved. We wanted to do the company in a different way through this stakeholder model. You know, this was just around the time that OpenAI had moved from a nonprofit to a cap profit. So we were able to work with Brad Lightcap, the CFO there, looking at different type of models. And this was super important for me to my what I was saying earlier about being afraid to work in psychedelics. Because I didn't want to end up like what we have seen repeatedly over and over again when you take a very powerful psychoactive substance and apply traditional corporate and governance models. And we saw that with the opioid crisis and just the aftermath of that. There's more recent coverage of that around stimulants and these startups that end up becoming pill mills. And I was like, I just don't want to like, we could probably make a lot of money in the short term by being a pill mill, but I just didn't want to do that, which is one of the reasons we stayed out of ketamine very early, much to like opposition to a lot of people saying, hey, you could make a short-term buck here. So that's why the stakeholder model was really important. So we have put 10% of the founding equity of the company into an irrevocable purpose trust so that the the land, the traditions, and the people that our medicines and our work are inspired from can benefit from it. And this is, this is different than saying, well, a lot of what a lot of things do, which is saying, well, we'll donate like 1% of our profits or 10% of profits. Like that's impossible to account for. Like our shares, our founding shares, the same shares that I have are in this trust. We can't take them back. Our investors can't, future investors can't take them back. It's fixed there. And eventually you want that to be led by stakeholders, including from indigenous communities so that they can benefit. And we're all aligned in, in growing the shares in, a, in, a, in value in a way that is sustainable. So that's made a big difference for us. And that's led us to where we are today in addiction, which is focusing with another stakeholder, which is rehab centers, where this is the majority of where people go to for care, for addiction. It's a, it's a mixed industry like many, but very poor outcomes, unfortunately. But where, you know, there is, when we think about what is needed for psychedelic care. And I think, you know, a number of your other guests talked about this is that, you know, it's not just the experience, unfortunately. If it was, everybody who went to a festival who took a high dose would come back cured or come back, you know, with durable results. But, you know, we, we see it's only transient when it's in that setting. And there's you know, a lot talked about set and setting, but what we're really talking about is like a program where we integrate this into care, where we meet patients where they are. And so what Journey has, is at today is working with rehab center partners to integrate psychedelic care with them initially through clinical trials within an, an intent to create an integrated treatment program. So this is one tool that is available where patients are today. 
Wow. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, I really love, again, the focus on the stakeholders, as you mentioned, and aligning aligning incentives because, you know, the Sackler experience, the opioid epidemic is actually one reason, one of the examples I often shared as we were building Osmosis, which is we don't want to be a company that can take, you know, money from this Purdue Pharma in that case, build educational programs based on one flimsy, I think it was a JAMA or Nedrum article that, oh, you know, OxyContin is not addictive, which obviously they did this in a in a controlled hospital setting, uh, inpatient setting, and and then you know be part of the problem that you know that we're seeing now. And kind of what you're focused on now is obviously to help people who are addicted to opioids, but other substances get off of that through maybe psychedelic therapy. So, what are some of the wins you've had so far? How big is the company, and what do you see as kind of the next three to five years? How how would that play out in your ideal world? Yeah, I think what you I'll say one thing is like when you talk about having different stakeholders, like you you could say like there's a lot of reasons to do it. It's the right thing to do, but it's also practically the right way to build a product and service that's gonna going to actually work and reach as many people as possible. Like the, the the sort of like lean startup refrain is like, you know, like talk to your customers, get out of your room, like you know that thing, and like you know it it becomes this like, you know, just slogan. But I think particularly you know. What, what Silicon Valley and YC does well is like getting close to your user, understanding who they are. And we're doing that through the stakeholder model, not only like in terms of, you know, I, I always say that like as a founder in psychedelics, I would be negligent in not talking to the people who have only are the only ones who have mastered this technology at scale, which are traditional communities that have successfully, are the only ones who have successfully integrated it. And when we look at their use, it is always done in the context of a expert healer, often called, you know, what we would call a shaman, someone who has a lot of training and it's done as part of a a very well-honed protocol or program, what was otherwise called a ceremony, and always done in the context of a larger community. And so that informs how we look at psychedelics and that it's, I actually look at psychedelics not as even assisted therapy, but as an interventional psychiatric procedure. And just like as a surgery, you have pre, intra, and post-operative care, we bring the same rigor to treating our population in recovery with what's called preparation, the journey or the integration. That's part of a larger program. That's why we work with rehab centers. And that's so that's where we are today. One of our one of our big wins has been, you know, having well, it's <laughs> I say it's a big win, but it's been kind of controversial not to say, hey, we're going to eliminate the therapy. We're going to go for shorter type of experiences. Like the reductionist view in psychedelics has come fast and quick and is the predominant one. But we have stayed in this more integrated view of psychedelics where the experience matters, time in that experience matters, that all the wraparound care is vital to it. You can't distill it away. And that we need to work with stakeholders to make that actually practically effective. And so one of our big wins has been working with a group called All Points North in Colorado. They're a leading addiction treatment center. And we will be, for the first time since, I think, Henry Osmond in the 1950s in Weyburn in Saskatchewan, close to where I was born and raised, are bringing psychedelic treatment and clinical research into a rehab setting. We'll be launching our first clinical trial with MDMA and psilocybin in the coming year for, for alcohol use disorder. And... This will be the first time to actually show that that's that we can integrate this treatment to where patients are today, uh, and expand that model to the many other treatment centers where p- patients are currently, and show that there's a new model to be able to bring this care rather than trying to build centers from the ground up that we can work with incumbents. And 
I think this is where I think your listeners can provide a lot of value in that in a lot of Silicon Valley approaches, it's about like building something new. It's about like taking people out. But this is where like doctors and institutions can make such a big difference because, you know, you, you can't, it, it for good or bad, it's hard to take out the incumbent. You need where patients are today. You need where providers are today. And this is where like, you know, you could go start a startup. But you could also work with a startup too. You could be like, hey, I'm going to be the innovative one inside the system that's going to partner with a startup and bring it in. So there's this multiple paths. But like, I think where clinicians and providers and centers have a really important to play as stakeholders is that like, you know, like you just, it's such an entrenched system that without having this being part of it, it the innovation is going to be slower. It's not going to happen. And so there's a vital role for us to be involved. Yeah. Yep, that's definitely a common a common theme on this podcast too. If like the companies that wind up succeeding achieve distribution, it, it very rarely do you go to zero to one and create like a whole new model like an Uber or Airbnb, which you know those models you're you're bucking regulation and have great outcomes. But in healthcare, I think most healthcare systems would not be as as supportive of that kind of thing because again, you, the risk is so high. These are patients, patients' lives. Yeah, I mean. The, the annoying thing when I first got to Silicon Valley almost 10 years ago now was everyone's like, well, we want to eliminate doctors. We want to eliminate the nurse. I'm like, why Why would you want to do that? Like, I understand that there, there's costs there. It's expensive. But why don't, I think the companies that have been most successful have not been the ones who have tried to say, okay, we're going to try to replace the doctor with an automated system or, you know, something else. It's the ones that said, these people are vital to what we're trying to do. They're trusted source. They have expertise obviously, but we're going to augment them. We're going to make them more efficient. We're going to make them be able to reach more people. Like Augmetics is a great example of that. Like, like and this is where they, you know, started with Google Glass as a virtual scribe, then moved to like, you know, other tools with AI, but they never said, hey, we're going to eliminate the doctor. They're like, we want to work with doctors. And I think that's a crucial point here in, in the innovation cycle in healthcare is that doctors, medical students, residents, like the new technologies that are coming out need us to be able to distribute and get out. And that's a vital role that we can play. Totally. Yeah, that's great. You preempted some advice as well. I wanted to ask you that you want to give to our, our audience, which we'll go to soon. But speaking of new technologies, you know, you and I, when we spoke a couple of months ago, talked a little bit, about, little bit about AI, which has obviously captured the public's attention. And you, you know it well with Sam on your board uh, at OpenAI and even referencing the CTO, CFO at OpenAI, helping you build your financial model. What is your view right now on how AI could be useful to what you're building at Journey Collab or in general, you know, healthcare? So I think in, so I, going back to what I was saying, like, there's a lot of talk about creating an AI therapist. I'm not sure how useful that's going to be. Perhaps I'm biased in that. I think the human connection really matters, but I think that we can use tools to augment those therapists. Certainly, you know, one thing is about adherence to training modules and ensuring people have the right supervision. So you could very easily imagine with the patient's consent that there's an agent that is listening in on the conversation and giving the therapist real-time feedback about adhering to the therapy manual or giving them supervision in real time or about like, say if there's a journal or like like outside the therapy session, like some support being provided to the patient, like summarizing all that, like a therapist can't read 
all the journals of their patients, but they could certainly get a summary or be flagged patients that are having, say, like suicidal ideation or going down or need, need a flag. So I think those type of augmenting tools are really interesting, particularly around supporting therapists, making therapists more effective, being able to give them more personalized touch to a wider, wider set of patients. That's what I'm really excited about. Broadly in healthcare, there are just so many inefficiencies that this new technology can help with, whether it's like, you know, there's the obvious example that we're going to get to an arms race on both sides of the coding issue where there's going to be coding agents that try and upscale and then payers that are going to use it to try and fight back. And I think people can make money there. But what's uh, what's more exciting is, again, this idea of augmenting physicians so that you, know, you could read scans early and fag them early for, say, you know, for stroke or other uh, for 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 other pieces again for more training, any anything around like being able to in- increase the reach of physicians, I think is going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, and then documentation actually is one like there's a lot of companies working in the space that's going to require like specific training data to be able to to do this. But like if you could just have an agent in the room, have your interaction, eliminate scream completely, the note is done not just for billing purposes but actual for clinical care. That's super exciting. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully we'll help help our providers stay in practice longer by reducing that administrative burden as well. That, that tends to be a reason a lot of our colleagues have, have left medicine. I'm curious, you know, one thing we discussed a couple months ago that I'd love your take on is, you know, I love that you guys are focused on addiction. Such a big problem, such a big gap, and it's only gotten worse over the last several decades. So that's, you know, clinical diagnosis, like abnormal, but I'm, I'm curious about the flourishing aspect, you know, because, you know, your tech entrepreneur has been very successful, who obviously, you know, you shared your mental health journey. So there's one thing of getting people from like, you know, abnormal, whatever that, however you define that mental health to normal, and then normal to flourishing, you know, maybe a tech entrepreneur who becomes more creative, more socially conscious because of the secular experience or a healthcare provider who, who just flourishes and loves their job even more than, you know, before. And so what's your take on that spectrum? And like, would Journey Club ever play a role in the flourishing side? Or, you know, are, are you supportive of it? Or do you think like the, we had the NIMH director on the podcast and Dr. Gordon, and he his mandate is very much abnormal to normal, not so much the normal to flourishing. I think the, the lens that I would look at that is again, going back to the traditions and the cultures and the people that have successfully integrated these very powerful tools into their cultures and into their societies in a way that you know was not what we did in the 60s with, with bringing psychedelics back into the Western world. And when I look at those traditions, there is the use of psychedelics for healing in terms of like a physical ailment or even like a, like a what we would call a mental health ailment. But there's also very much the ritual of using it at the transitions of life. And across many different cultures, when we examine it closely, there are some parts of life that a ceremony has been used, whether that's the coming of age in adolescence to adulthood, the birth of a first child, the death of a parent, some sort of change. And the one constant that we have in our lives is change. And what's interesting is when we marry that with the new science that's coming around with psychedelics, particularly Gould Dolan's work out of Johns Hopkins, where you know, we talk about this as plasticity, and that 
really is not specific enough or nuanced enough of an understanding. And her work is really interesting. And I'll, I'll summarize it very quickly is that psychedelics in, in her framework seem to open up what's called a critical period in the human brain. And we know about these developmental critical periods, like learning a new language, learning language when you're young or social orient, like socialization in adolescence, where you are more sensitive to your environment, more you have a faster rate of learning so you can adapt. And psychedelics seem to have in her framework the ability to introduce temporarily that critical period again, particularly on social reward circuits. So when you talk about flourishing, what I think about is that the con the only constant that we have in life is change. And that often when people struggle, it's in those those moments of change that either happen externally to them or as they are progressing through their lives. And we know that these traditional communities have used successfully in the context of ceremony, expert healers, community, helping people to get through them. And we do not have that anymore. And that's very intentional, like from the burning of the library in Alexandria to the war on drugs today, like we have like Western culture has systematically destroyed and eliminated that culture and that knowledge of plant medicine. And I think what you're asking is, well, we can help this in specific ailments, but can this be helpful just in the course of our lives? And I think everything that we know about traditional use says, yes, we absolutely can. How do we have a framework of that outside of the medical system? I think is something that we need to build. We just, we just don't have that anymore. And it's not just about Unfortunately, it's not just about saying, okay, these are available now, because without that, again, those expert healers and guides, without that culture around the appropriate use of when and where and how, I think we'll end up to what happened, you know, just a few decades ago, where we lose them again. Yeah, that's a super valid point and something that aligns really well with what Matt Johnson said on this podcast too, of the the, the cycles we go through of rediscovering, learning about these tools and then banning them because you know it was sort of like prometheus with fire like there's always like any tool fire psychedelics ai there's obviously positives and negatives uh, it's just how you apply them i'm respectful of your time so i only have two other questions for you the first is any advice i mean you went through med school you went through a phd you've been a tech entrepreneur you currently are still what advice would you give to our audience about approaching their careers that's a good question i think it's understanding your risk tolerance is very important. And it is absolutely okay to say like, I have, you know, at a period of time in your life, more risk tolerance and less risk tolerance and understanding that that is going to be an evolving thing. And in addition to risk tolerance, the other thing that comes through is opportunity cost. So you may have earlier in your career, less risk tolerance, because perhaps you come from an immigrant background or you come from thing where you're like, hey, I re you know, really need to pay the bills and your opportunity cost. But you, at that time in your life, your opportunity cost is low. Go on later in your life. And I see this happening to a lot of physicians later in their life where they're like, OK, I have lower risk tolerance because I've established myself in my career. I have a good practice. But the problem is then now your opportunity cost has gone through the roof. And now for you to step away, even a, from a day of clinic, in real dollars is a lot of money in addition to the fact that you may have kids now you may have a mortgage and so 
like I, I, the way I try and map it out to people is like you have to look at these two dimensions in your career and understanding like both like when can you take on more risk and when do you have the opportunity cost to be able to do that and they are often conflicting and understanding that like those you you have to make a choice on that and I've seen a, like some people step out early and you know where the risk tolerance is high but the opportunity cost is low and they've done different things like they've been you know they may be able to make it work either going into a traditional corporate job in pharma coming back to medicine like it's easier in some cases it's easier to do that when you're younger and earlier in career but then i've also seen people who really wanted to be more creative in their career later on but they're they're trapped in like well the opportunity cost is just so high so i'm not giving people an answer there but like i think those are the two dimensions that i like to tell to people is like where where are you where do you see that see that's going to be and where are you going to get an opportunity where they line up where you can you can take different choices based on those two two dimensions yeah that's that's incredible feed advice and just more broadly self-awareness right just getting to a point of self-awareness where you understand where you know what your values are what your risk tolerance is as you're saying are you someone who subscribes to the sunk cost fallacy? You know, I did this much time. I got to keep going. How can I give up a medical career because I spent already 10 years training in it? So yeah, I'm sure you're a big fan of decision-making frameworks and books, you know, how to decide by Annie Duke or thinking fast and slow by Kahneman. Uh, but yeah, definitely recommend that to all of, all of our learners and your advice is well taken. Last question for you. Is there anything else you want to tell our audience about you, about psychedelics, about Journey Collab, open mic? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my my message is that psychedelics are a very, very powerful tool. And that while there are different applications for it, say ceremonial, recreationally, you know, others, in the clinical space, we need to treat them with an immense amount of respect and rigor, like they have always been in traditional communities. And that gives us a role as clinicians and physicians to step into that. Now, it's not, I'm not saying that's the, the only people that can be involved in how we're moving into bringing main, mainstreaming and bringing this into our into our culture and society. But we have a very important role, I think, as clinicians to help the people who are most vulnerable, who can also benefit the most, ensure that there is a safe place for them to be able to access this and that they are treated with respect, with safety and with accountability. So I'm very excited for clinicians to have this role in making sure that this very powerful tool is able to help the people who need it the most. And I encourage clinicians, you know, wherever you're on the spectrum to look, look into it and see, because I think for the first time, like for so long, mental health and psychiatry, behavioral clinical was stuck. We just didn't have tools and we are coming back to a tool that we have used throughout our evolution as as a species and bringing them back and while i think there are these other areas that they certainly need to be looked at we have a very important role to make sure that for the people who need it the most we can ensure that this tool is wielded in a responsible way and help the people who need it the most well that's a really inspirational message to end on and i'm really glad that you you and your team and journey are working on this because you know, I think we've had a lot of academics on the podcast who are amazing. They're doing the groundbreaking work upon which companies like yours and and we also Ronan Le Levy, another entrepreneur in the space on the podcast, are built. But like you, you know, I, f I feel very strongly like you that bench to bedside. There's so many things we know work or are working really well, but there just needs to be scalable models, things that align incentives like what you're doing with stakeholder ownership that 
but get it to the people who need it the most. So Zishan, uh, I really like to thank you for the time you've taken to be with us on the Raiseline podcast, but more importantly, the work you and your team are doing a journey to hopefully tackle this addiction crisis we, we all know about. Thanks for having me. And with that, I'm Shivik Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.